0: Vocal Prize Podcast, the podcast about linguistic discrimination.
1: I'm Megan Figueroa,
0: and I'm Carrie Gillen.
1: Hello, Carrie. Hello. Hello. I um, I just wanted to say before I forget, I hope everyone's staying safe. Oh boy.
0: Yeah. Yes.
1: I mean, I couldn't mean anything, right? I really couldn't mean anything when I say I hope people are staying safe. It's.
0: That's true. Ugh. There's lots of things going on yeah. in the world. Yeah. But yeah. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> COVID and. Yeah. Fida and yeah fires
1: people are being evacuated as we speak i believe still yeah
0: once again people had to scramble to their attics it's a complete
1: replay of 2005 and i heard that they can't evacuate the hospitals because nearby hospitals are full of covid patients not just nearby there's nowhere to send
0: them in the states there's no room.
1: Nowhere in the States. Like, they couldn't come to Arizona. No. Wow. There's no room. Oh. It's
0: worse in the state. It's worse in the South, for yeah. sure. But there's no there's no extra capacity, basically, anywhere. Yeah, so they didn't even bother evacuating. And, you know, many of the hospitals have generators that will, should work for 10 days, but at least one of them, the generators, failed last night. Mm. So, yeah. Oh, this is horrifying. It is horrifying. It, Yeah. <laughs> so I hope, yeah, I hope everyone is uh, as safe as they can be.
1: And, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, we're thinking of you. Yes. So um, I have to say, Carrie, I've been watching this show on Hulu called Nine Perfect Strangers with Nicole Kidman. And I just wanted to put this out there on the airwaves because I need to know from people that, familiar <laughs> with Russian accents maybe maybe a Ru- um, someone with a Russian accent <laughs> is Nicole Kidman's Russian accent very inauthentic or not because you're not watching right you're not watching no yet. I've never even heard of it I've just she's playing this woman named Masha who's you know they they state explicitly that it's this Russian woman um, and I'm just really wondering if it's authentic or if it's like you know it's a it's a supposed to be someone who came to the US so like is it authentic when you've spent more years in the US at this point but you still have you know um features of of Russian coming into your I don't know but I feel like it's so inauthentic and maybe it's just because it's Nicole Kidman for me and I just can't you know reconcile her speaking in a Russian accent how did you get in here
0: I came in through the door I'm Masha. You're her. Why are you crying, Frances?
2: Well, um, you know, it's
0: a little bit of my career is over kind of thing. A bit of menopause.
2: Mm. Makes in a little bad relationship, a dash of crippling shame. We're gonna get you well.
1: eric singer i wish i could ask eric um our favorite our favorite uh accent coach if, yeah. uh, if it's authentic but you know it's funny because talking with him i would have asked well, "Is her accent terrible um but now i'm using authentic and authentic because i know how hard um actors work on these things so
0: yeah i have no idea i've never heard her try to put on a, a russian accent They're usually pretty bad, as far as I can tell. Like, you know, I I have a number of friends who are Russian or grew up in Russia. And yeah, none of them sound like the people on TV. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well,
1: someone I did some work with when I was an undergrad, she was from Russia. And this is not anything like how Nicole Kidman is sounding to me. Um, But you're right that often people get the Russian accent wrong. It's always like this villainous, over-the-top kind of... I don't know. I don't know what she's doing. Maybe it's the most authentic thing ever, and I just have no idea. But if anyone has any opinions, (laughs) let me know. I'm very curious.
0: (laughs) It's actually kind of distracting
1: for me. Yeah. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Speaking of accents, I mean, this is uh, an authentic (laughs) accent, but um, last night we were watching CNN, and I don't Mm -hmm. normally watch CNN, but, you know, Hurricane and just the first anchor was i'm pretty sure australian and then it switched over to another anchor and i was like is she also australian or is she british and i couldn't figure it out so i had to look it up south african oh <laughs> of course oh fr- of course. yeah if i can't figure it out between those two it's
1: of course it's south african <laughs> yeah it's like yeah it's like if you put those two together, what is it equal? Kind of, kind of, yeah. <laughs> How funny! Anyway. Yeah, it's a you know, as a linguist and as you know, listener, um, our listeners, maybe they are like this too, even if they don't consider themselves a linguist. It's hard not to wonder about accents. Yeah. I mean, in, in a in a very like like not in a mean or you know disparaging way, but it's like, where is that from? I can't place it. I can't place yeah. it. And I always want to place yeah, it. There's nothing inherently wrong being cu- about being
0: curious about where someone's from. It's just, like, yeah. often it's not innocent. Right. But in this case, it really was. Like, I just wanted to know where she was, where, like, where that accent came from. Yeah. Because I couldn't place it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, we had an email I thought mm. might be interesting to uh, listen to. And I, I she has a really good point about, like, something, a topic that we haven't addressed mm. at all yet. And there's many of those. Yes. <laughs> okay, Hi, Carrie and Megan. I'm a relatively recent fan of the podcast, but a longtime fan of linguistics. If you can, I'd really love to hear you talk with someone about Yiddish. Mm -hmm. I'd suggest Jewish languages, dialects in general, but that might be a bit much for a single podcast podcast episode. My own relationship with Yiddish has evolved a lot because I actually converted to Judaism as an adult. I went from vaguely knowing that a few words and phrases like schmuck or Oi had Yiddish origins to being fiercely protective language against Gentiles who think that it's an inherently ridiculous slash unserious language, or who believe that it's useless slash outdated slash extinct. It's very much a living language. But hey, do you think there might be a reason that there are so few speakers today compared to oh 1939 (laughs) Anyway, I love what you do and look forward to each episode that comes out. Best, Jessica. Thank you, Jessica.
1: Thank you for your email. And anyone who wants to email us before we talk about that, it's focalfriespod at gmail.com we love your emails. I don't know much about Yiddish, I just realized now, and I would love to know more. And this is one of those moments where I hope listeners are like, oh, even a linguist doesn't know everything about language. Yes, of course not. Um, I have so much to learn.
0: Most of what I know about Yiddish comes from like the language revitalization Mm -hmm. side of things. It's a fascinating language. and, And there's others too, like she brings up that there's other Jewish languages, like uh, she doesn't she doesn't mention them, but like Ladino, which yeah, is like yeah. Spanish. I was gonna say Spanish, and then, yeah. yeah. And there's others as well. So, yeah, I would love to. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just so many topics to get to. I know
1: Yiddish on the list. Believe you know, believe us that our list is long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's many, many, many yeah <laughs> things on that list that we haven't even
0: gotten yeah. to. But yeah, so. Thank you so much. And anyone, yeah, please email us yes. other ideas. We will hopefully get to them as soon as we can. And then, uh, one last thing I thought maybe we wa- might want to talk about just briefly. Remember how we talked about bat communication <laughs> for one of our episodes way back Yeah, when? it was for Halloween. It was a ha- one of our
1: Halloween yeah. episodes. Yeah. So, bat pups babble and bat moms use baby talk. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. In nature, it's baby bats babble like human inf- infants and Damn, that alliteration. Yeah, it's. Could have gone <laughs> further
1: somehow. <laughs> yes. Baby bats babble like babies? I don't know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> That's so cute. Yeah. yeah. And so infants babble, whether it's sign or spoken. And so now I guess they're finding that baby bats are babbling as well, which is adorable. And also songbirds,
0: songbirds also, the one did also babble, yeah.
1: Yes, songbirds, birds are so fascinating. I never thought I would think that, but their communication is so fascinating. But um, I want to put this out on the record that bats are so underappreciated for their cuteness.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're so cute. bats are cute. And now they babble. So they, they converted audio snippets of these bat, baby bats um, into spectrograms. And then they searched for these key features that characterize babbling in human babies, including Mm -hmm. repetition of syllables and rhythm in their sounds. And they had all eight of the features. Oh, all eight.
1: Wow. All eight. And that's... Okay, the songbirds and people... Okay, so birds vocalize using a syrinx. Humans use a larynx. What are the bats using?
0: That is an excellent question that I do not Let's know. Let's
1: see. Is it say? It doesn't say. Maybe I'm just missing it. Let's see. Bat. Larynx. <laughs> 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 yeah, they have a larynx. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I learned something. Oh, That's so cute. Very cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And
0: Megan is going to do something special for uh, New Pages. Yes. Yes, so I
1: have a weaving that I did of the word fuck, (laughs) Uh, but it's very colorful. I'll post it on Twitter, Um, but anyone that is a new patron, um, starting when our episode is released to, let's say, 48 hours, I will put your name in a hat and uh, give away my fuck (laughs) weaving um (laughs) to one of you so yeah if you want to join patreon and you just haven't yet this might be the time for you um it's patreon.com slash vocal pod yay and this episode is very very good so as all episodes that we do
0: yeah (laughs) we we have the best
1: guests (laughs) yeah i got
0: to talk a lot about all kinds of things like like that we've talked about before but like not quite in the same way like it just like weaves all these things together it's nice
1: it is it's and it's just a testament to like the beautiful brains of our of our two guests here so
0: This show and want to make your own? Let me tell you about Anchor. It's free and they have creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And now you can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. The possibilities are endless for what you can create, whether it's music analysis, your own radio show, or something the world's never heard before. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. And you can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. So for today, we have two guests, both from Berkeley we're very excited to have them. Natalie Daniels is the Cleary Liaison for the University of California, Berkeley. And Dr. Rose Wilkerson is a sociolinguist and a lecturer in African-American studies where she talks about technology and race and all those good things. And she's also at Berkeley. So welcome to both of you.
3: Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited. So thank you for, for creating the space.
0: Okay, so before we get to, into the reason why we wanted to have you both on, I'm curious about
3: what is a Clery liaison? Sure. Um, so I'll try to <laughs> condense this into a really short description of, of what Clery is. But um, every Institute of Higher Education that receives Title IV funding, um, which is going to be essentially all of your public schools, and that's most of the forms of financial aid that we understand from a federal entity come through Title IV. So each of the spaces that uh, receive Title IV funding are responsible for remaining compliant with the Cleary Act. Gene um, Cleary was a student who was unfortunately um, sexually assaulted and then murdered in her dorm room. And her parents worked with the Department of Education to develop what are now known as the Clery Act uh, uh, compliance steps. So um, campuses have to do a great deal of work on the back end to uh, maintain appropriate record ke- record keeping around um, forms of violence that happen on campus um, and also have to have transparent methods for reporting that information every year so that the public can know um, what sorts of incidents and violence and harm are actually occurring on campuses um, mm-hmm. so that's that's a broad <laughs> broad understanding of what the clear act is there's a lot of finite details around um, different policy steps and prevention steps and all of these other aspects how we actually use that data um, in order to remain compliant um, but yeah so that's sort of sort of a broader overview of, of where the Clery Act roles um, come from
0: what an important job yeah when I saw that was what your title was I thought we at least needed to know what that is because I bet a lot of people have probably never even heard of it
3: yeah right. yeah I think it's yeah. I think it's always good to, to for folks to know who Gene Cleary was and to, yeah. So that that isn't just another lost statistic, which was yeah, the whole intent right. of her parents yeah. working with the Department of Education is this cannot happen again. Um, right. And yeah, so it's it's been a huge movement on the on the federal side to to push for that side, that level of transparency from campuses like ours.
0: One of the reasons why we wanted to have you on, Natalie was because you've talked about your experience of transferring to Berkeley from Community College. Can you talk a little bit about your? background, and what it was like to arrive at Berkeley?
3: Yeah, I definitely can. So I was born on the Diné Reservation into a, an extremely multicultural, uh, mm-hmm. multi-regional, multi-spiritual family. Uh, we have a rich, beautiful, complicated history that's woven together by a lot of systems, including systems of violence, but also systems of resilience. And so just naming that those things exist in tandem when it comes to my family um, and adds to the complexity, but also adds to the, I think the the richness that, that my family offers um, whenever they're anywhere really. The reservation and my community there were the first to expose me to a lot of, I would say the most fundamental human experiences and processes, like for example, even what it means to learn. What? How do you open yourself up to learning? and What does that feel like? Uh, What does it mean to communicate, to heal, to apologize, to celebrate anything? All of those framings came um, from this core community that I had in a very small space on the res. Uh, And I don't know that I can describe so much what that's like, (laughs) as opposed to just sharing that it really shaped me um, and that I'm still learning every day how that shaped me as I enter both uh, difficult as well as uh, pleasant circumstances in my life. So when I enter things that make me feel really good and I sort of just reflect on how I've learned to celebrate those moments, um, those, are mo- those are opportunities for me to learn how all of that education shaped me as a young person. Um, and my family generally has, or generally has a, a, a genealogy that's very difficult to map, um, considering that it's it's a mix of enslaved black populations and indigenous communities. And all of those things are very difficult to understand where a lot of these things come from um, outside of knowing that it's been experienced at the hands of American imperialism and and colonialism and genocide and things of of that nature. Um, But these are connections and identities that I'm really grateful for and that I've learned to cherish as opposed to resent, which also took a lot of work just to to hold all of that, all of those complexities at once. As for transferring into Berkeley, that was surreal and incredibly challenging. I was coming in as an out-of-state community college transfer, um, and I immediately recognized how little experience I had in producing academic content that met the expectations and caliber that's normalized at UC Berkeley. It was a very steep learning curve, and I struggled to find my footing, I would say, for almost a year, which was severely exacerbated by how difficult it was to find or identify folks from my communities on campus. So all of that <laughs> sort of fed into this, this very complex relationship and dynamic that I had to my own public education, something that I had a right to and that was supposed to be accessible to me. Um, and it made it really very, very difficult. Um, and I think a lot of these challenges extend well beyond communication approaches and are perhaps more vested or nested in cultural and value systems. So what do American institutions of education genuinely value? Um, and I think that was Something that was brought to my attention on a daily basis, uh, just with my presence on campus. To what extent did they want to value my assimilation versus my contribution? And those are two things that had to coexist and had to become conflated in order to survive and thrive on the campus. Um, and I really wish that hadn't been the case. But those were sort of just just some of the some of the pieces to just touch on for now um, with how challenging that that transition was.
1: I think it's really great the way that you described all that, because we a lot of us are having to assimilate into someone else's idea of success. What you took to Berkeley, you had to transform the way you, for example, speak to fit someone else's idea of success.
3: Absolutely. I think I think I had to frame both even my own, or I guess I, I had to juxtapose or question my own value systems at Berkeley mm-hmm. in the sense of of these things that the campus heralded as the way of progress and the way of improvement, the way of developing, right? Considering um, both of both of the identities in my families come from severely underdeveloped spaces in the United States. And so uh-huh. acknowledging what they mean by development and what they mean by, um, by potential and all of these other aspects, you know, and recognizing that that oftentimes when my communities were involved, it was either uh, deeply embedded or deeply entrenched in assimilation or they were the, the observation or research subject, right? And so recognizing how the university, what the university's relationship is to my identities. And I'm just, I'm just strictly speaking racial identities right now, right? There's, there's so many other identities at play here that shaped what it meant for me to be in quote welcomed, end quote, by the campus that theoretically accepted me. Right. They accepted my application. Um, and sort of the standard that I had to meet upon arrival to, to recognize it's like, Oh, okay. So, so acceptance is contingent, right? Acceptance is, is conditional. These are, these are things that are, that are going to be conditional on how do you still achieve an A? How do you still maintain this GPA in this construct? Uh, As opposed to it being, how do we accommodate our construct to, to meet the, the wisdom and expertise of all of the folks we've invited to be here that is you know part of part of the challenge coming into a campus like like uh just in terms of my experience and my experience is not alone i know there's you know many many other people who went through something similar um and and still are uh not just at berkeley it's you know this is a globalized phenomena within higher education but but yes i absolutely agree with with everything you've just framed
0: so what are the two communities that your family comes from
3: yeah so uh my family is very very heavily mixed black indigenous, so we've got a lot of a lot of different uh national cultural identities wrapped up in those things um Both of those identities are pretty ambiguous for the most part because it's very hard to trace back exact lineages for for any of those um aspects. I know that uh my my grandmother, for example, has been trying to trace back information for as as long as she's been alive. Um, to just try to understand where we come from. Um, She has an incredible history that she's maintained herself via photographs. So she's got a lot of photos and every single photo has words written from top to bottom on the back, describing who the person is, who they married, who their children were, what their lineages were, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Those are not seen as valid forms of record keeping, but it's the best record keeping we have. So um, and that dates back several uh, women on that side of the family having done that work, um, which I'm exceptionally grateful for, because that is the best that's the best family history I'll ever have. Uh, it's the closest closest I'll get to to knowing um, to knowing any of those any of those pieces. So I think both of those communities, um, in terms of, of saying, like, what exactly is this identity? I think both of those communities have struggled for so long to know what the answer is to say mm-hmm. to say, I, I wish I knew. Right. And so um, that's sort of the the place that we sit with that. But we do know that we're mixed with with several communities, uh, several tribal communities. We were also obviously I was born and raised on the Diné Reservation. And then um, we also have uh, my grandmother was still lives about 20 miles out from the most recent plantation to own that side of the family. So just recognizing how all of those histories are still so connected while making sure all of that information is withheld from us right um and so yeah so that's sort of the the very complex identity web that exists uh in my family
2: talking about your your family and your history and and cultures uh reminds me of my cousin who i have a cousin who has been doing research on our indigenous lineage because we have a indigenous although most of us were pretty much brought up as african-american or african-american culture Um, We have some indigenous family on my mother's side of the family, and uh, we were always told that, that they were from the Blackfoot tribe, but what my cousin found out when doing her research was that she said, number one, sometimes people would say Blackfoot because it was a formidable force against the European colonists. So sometimes people would say, oh, we're Blackfoot. you know. <laughs> or and, and I think what she found out was that and I don't, I don't remember the name of the uh, of the particular group, but that there is um, that there was a translation thing. It's not that we're connected to the Blackfoot tribe that most people know about in the northern areas like the Dakotas and whatnot. But there was another group. Where the translation was Blackfoot, but it's a completely different uh, indigenous group altogether. So it's just—it's really interesting that you talk about that. And I thought, oh yeah, that reminds me of that. You know, things can be very, very complex, you know. Yeah, that's
3: so fascinating to hear because I—I've heard of similar translation errors in terms of you know oral history then getting translated to written history across you know multiple lingual influences and and the right. result being you know oh like the paperwork said this you know and it's and in reality it's this this whole other tribe it's this whole other part of the united states that that folks are connected to so i i definitely hear you that is and and how politicized the the power and strength of the blackfoot resistance is in yeah. folks then wanting to align uh with wow. those circumstances that's so fascinating uh, thank you for sharing
2: you're welcome. And, and I just wanted to add something else about the complexity, like in our family in, in, in particular, uh, because the, the way that I've grown up in my generation, it's pretty much African-American. But in my mother's and um, grandmother's generation, um, it's a little bit, it really was complex. We had, um, I think we, I, I'm not quite clear on this, but I think that our family was involved with the Trail of Tears, which we never heard stories about. And part of that is that sometimes things are so traumatic. And so um, I don't know how to how to put it, but just so traumatic in a way that, you know, a lot of the elders, our elders didn't like to talk about it, you know, or even if they did talk about something, they're in a whisper. Oh, yeah, well, he is uh, gone because of something happened. <laughs> you know, Like, there's no one that's going to do anything at this point. Right. But, and, you know, uh, these people are long gone, you know, I've passed away from, uh, from here, but um, you know, uh, a lot of times they didn't talk about these things because mm-hmm. it's just too much for, it's too emotional. It's too traumatizing. Mm-hmm. Or And it, sometimes it was about asking the right questions. You just, mm-hmm. yeah. there were certain ways that you communicated with uh, the older generations than. Um, you know, than we do now. Now everybody asks questions and we, you know, put all that information out. But, but back then it's just, it just wasn't a part of, you know, uh, some of the communication depending upon what was going on. So thank yeah. you. For I want to appreciate that. Just give you some about how complex that can be.
0: Rose, uh, tell us about the classes you're teaching at Berkeley.
2: So I have a, just a, a quick bio. I have a PhD in <laughs> linguistics. And I uh, focused on African-American English in particular. And my dissertation research was on uh, African-American English in the Mississippi Delta. Is that where you're from? No, I'm not. (laughs) Okay, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I found some, um, I met a colleague who had sociological interviews on tape, tape recordings. And so she had tons of them and I went through, listened to them and I thought, oh, you know, maybe I could do some research on on that. And so oh, that's, you know, was my dissertation research and, and what have you. So after I got my PhD, this was like 2008. And then we had a new president, which was President Obama. And then, you know, the economy kind of dropped out, <laughs> dropped <laughs> down, you know. So there weren't really a lot of positions open at the time. Um, but and so what I went, what I did is I went into uh, lecturing. Uh, well, I had a postdoc for about two years. And then I went into lecturing. Now what I'm teaching, I taught some at Berkeley in the linguistics department, uh, the American Languages course, which is a wonderful um, course about um, the different languages that are here. I mean, the funny thing is that sometimes when I tell people the American languages, people say, what, there's more than one? Like, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Do you not know? So um, it talks about some of the indigenous languages, talks about the different colonial languages that have been here, uh, as well as different English dialects and how they got started. And so I taught that for a few years, and then I was it? I was asked by African American Studies to do a course on African Americans in the t- in tech the technology industry. And that was because at the time I was working on some research on language and video games, and that mm. was a, a fun thing for me. <laughs> so. I never got to publish. I do have the paper somewhere. I have to publish it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was something fun that I was doing. And uh, the head of the department had heard about it. I, I guess I was talking about it with her one time and she called me and, hey, we'd love to have a course on this. And so that's how I started. And now I'm teaching information, society and technology. And the other course is um, lives of struggle, uh, minorities in a majority culture. Both of them focus on technology and, and bias and racism in just different ways. Uh, they kind of cross, a lot of the topics cross each other. Uh, the Lives of Struggle is an American culture's course, and so the focus is more on the impact of this biased technology and on Native American, um, African American, and Latinx communities. Uh, so I look at things such as, for example, uh, facial recognition, oh, facial record. I mean, I do look at facial recognition recognition technology, but basically policing algorithms. Mm-hmm. That's a, a huge part of my course and, and how they're using technology to predict uh, crime. And that's a huge thing. No one can predict. It's like trying to predict earthquakes. You can't predict earthquakes. As a matter of fact, one of the technologies that they're using in I think they're using it in, in Los Angeles. I'm not sure if they're still using it. I think they are. Is based off of earthquake prediction technology, which we can't really predict earthquakes. We, you know, it's based <laughs> on where earthquakes have happened, and so there's a prediction of well, possibly the same thing with crime. You know, it well crimes have happened here and there, and you know, in, in these particular areas. So therefore, it's going to happen in these areas again. They they even have it down to like almost predicting where it's going to happen. But the problem with that is that when you have an overpoliced communities, especially Black and Latinx communities, then what you're really doing is doing the same thing of over-policing. <laughs> That's what it is. But it's in the guise of technology to make it seem like it's neutral. So in other words, <laughs> it's not based on bias or, or, raci- or racism. The computer is telling us
0: this. <laughs> the computer, which does it all on its own. <laughs>
2: Right, it's it's still repeating the same problem, you know. It's not it's not resolving, it in you know in any form or fashion. So um, that's kind of like the thing that we look at. And the other course, kind of broaden it a little bit, where um, we are looking at uh, what is it chatbots and how they're used to you know um, so Microsoft in particular put out a chatbox Tay and it had a weak point that some you know people discovered and um, it was supposed to just be able to gather conversations and have conversations with people just around the world. And when they put it out there, I think on Twitter or something like that, it didn't do well. (laughs) It started, so people took advantage of it and it started spewing out racist stuff and, you know, sexist and, and whatnot. And, but the way they handled it was more of here are a list of terms that you don't talk about. You know, that's what they told the software to do. Rather than have it learn from conversations about race and, you know, (laughs) and, and other things, it just said just it, it's you know, I brought the I bring the question to the students. Race is not a, a black list of terms that like, you just don't use. That doesn't resolve the issue. So, you know, we just talk about those kinds of things. It's it's a lot of fun to to teach and whatnot. I think the students really learn a lot about, you know, uh, this this oh, the overall topic of racism and and, and uh, technology.
1: Both you and Adeline have mentioned words like standard English and you know power oppression and then saying that nothing is neutral can we've talked about this before on the show but can you tell us um, what standard language ideology is
2: yes when I teach about American English I always start off with what is standard English and why is it that we believe it's a standard Most people in this country are taught to believe that standard English is somehow correct English. And everything else usually means, uh, which usually means the English varieties of people of color or people at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale or something like that, or social scale, social pole, I call it, um, is somehow bad, broken, whatever, disturbed English or, or what have you. And we have a lot of research, especially in education, with African-American children of what that means. So, for example, if you guys have heard about the Ebonics controversy back in the 1990s and how big that was blown up in so many ways. Um, I've taught a course specifically about that, about what what happened was that Oakland, the Oakland School District found that many African-American children were being put into special education because of their speech, not because of any you know intellectual issues or that there were special needs or anything like that. So um, what that tells you is that there's a perception that be, that their speech is not the standard form of English, meaning that there's something wrong with them, these kids intellectually. This is really a part of a long history in terms of dealing with African Americans in this country. So it's not it's not that surprising when you know the the, the history. It's unfortunate because. A lot of the kids um, were really, in a sense, misdiagnosed and placed into special education uh, classes when they didn't belong there. And so um, uh, even some some parents came out and said, wait a minute, this is not correct. Not in Oakland's case, but in in, I think there was another case, maybe Chicago, Detroit or something like that, where that happened. So there's a perception that um, there is a correct way to speak English and an incorrect Way to speak English, which is not true. So, when, what people don't realize is standard English is the English of the people who have socioeconomic power. That's all it is. Socioeconomic and political power, I should add to that. That's what that, that means. And that has actually shifted in US history. Uh, in particular, standard English used to be East Coast, almost like New England kind of English, almost British sounding or something, you know, very different. If you remember back, probably in the eighties or so seventies or eighties where the, a lot of the, um, what do you call it? Um, newscasters, national news came from the East coast. And there was a certain kind of way that they spoke English that was looked at as upon. Um, I mean that in a way that kind of English was looked at as being somehow more standard that there's a long history to that. Actually it precedes the the seventies the for sure. But um then, what, what ended up happening is that you have the economic center of the country that shifted to the Midwest. And that was, you know, the industrial period. And with the industrial period, then it became more of uh, Midwestern English that was the standard. So, there have been shifts, you know, in terms of what is considered the standard. Then you also have the influence of Hollywood, you know, of Los Angeles in particular, you know, Valley Girl used to just be in the valley. You know? <laughs> But now it's all over the place. <laughs> we used to call it Valley Girl speech when I was younger. And that's how we knew that the, the ways in which, um, what is it, people from Southern California in the Valley area spoke. But because of, of Hollywood and, and the popularization or the use of uh, what we used to call Valley Girl talk, that has, in a way, it's, it's kind of spread throughout the country in different ways. So you also have television that plays a role in that as well. But there is no standard language. And that's one of the things I teach in the class. There is no standard English. And I'm like, what? What? (laughs) You know? I'm like, no, there isn't. What it is is that it has to do with people who have socioeconomic and political power. So in other words, um, I would say white middle class, if anything, Midwestern kind of, you know, or it, it could be kind of Los Angeles too, just it's a little bit of a mix. That basically, if I want to work in your company. Uh, then I need to speak the variety of English that you speak. And that's very clearly understood in, in, in you know, many areas in, in the United States. That's what it has to do with, about. So think about, like, for example, in the Civil War, there was a civil war between the North and the South and, and what have you. And, and if the South won the war, what English variety do you think would be, you know, <laughs> would be mainstream English or, or standard English? It would be Southern English. So, whenever you have a power shift like that, that's what becomes the standard of language. It's often based on, um, I would say, white middle class speech in some form or fashion. And, th- and that's what it is. So, the, the ideology behind it is that this is the correct way and everything else is incorrect. When that's not how it really operates with language and how people learn languages. So, there were even different varieties of British English that came into this country. Uh, some will tell you many of the what is it Appalachian English. I, I, I wish I had my map in front of me, and I don't, unfortunately. But you have um, what is it in Appalachia? They have uh, influence from the Scots. I want to say Scots Irish, I think, mm-hmm. in terms yeah. of you know the way that they speak English. And then I believe that Southern English came from Southern British English. So there are these different things that, depending upon where the people came from, they brought that variety of English uh, into, you know, particular areas of the country, and that's mm-hmm. how why you have so many varieties. One of the problems with standard English ideology is how we treat uh, children of color in education. That's the one of the biggest issues, and they really do not. Many teachers do not understand or even know about the history of English. That you know, for example, Black English or African American English is just another variety, and it's not just because it's black. You know, like like somehow race. You know, if you were born black, you somehow will speak African American English. That it language doesn't happen that way. You can you speak whatever the language of love or the language of communication. From your family and your community that's how you that, that's the variety of english it doesn't matter it has nothing to do with race but much of the uh, you know african-american english has some uh, southern english that's connected to it um uh, other kinds of you know varieties it just really depends upon where they are and the you know and where where they are in the country um, but there are a lot of similarities because we have a common kind of uh, I would say a history and uh, many African Americans have come from the south and have migrated in other parts of the country so you know whether it's uh, let's say the east coast the north or or west some of the uh, southern English variety is still a part some structures are still a part of the of the language so and then people in, in terms of what region you're in uh, there's a difference in terms of how you speak. Not to say that, you know, African Americans from California, you know, sound just like the people in the South. Not necessarily. Sometimes, you know, there's some differences and, and things of that nature. But we do understand each other. We tend to understand each other when we're speaking, um, you know, African American English. So, And we have a common culture and, and history. And that that is also tied into, you know, the communication, tied into African American English. So it's the same. Chicano English is very similar. And, and one of the things that's really interesting is that Varieties of English that are spoken by uh, minorities, in particular, tend to be looked at as uh, communication deficiencies. They can't really speak the standard. When it's really about the fact that it has to do with the the, um, the their networks and their families that they navigate in, and it's the language of love. And so, when you go into, it's a language of family and communication and community. So when you go into a school system. That tells you that way you speak is incorrect or bad. Um, you're not just talking about, you know, the structures and the words that are coming out of their mouth. You're really talking about the people in their culture, the kids and their cultures, and that's the message that comes across.
1: So, to both you and Natalie, then,
2: how can we push back against these harmful
1: ideologies? That this deficit thinking about. People that don't speak the "quote unquote" standard. Um, so, how can we push back against this both in secondary education and um, our lives? Because this is, like I said, harming all of us.
3: I can definitely weigh in just briefly on this. Um, I think one of the biggest parts of sort of the process you just named, which is obviously monumental, right? This is mm-hmm. this is a huge, huge paradigm shift uh, that's necessary. And mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest biggest pieces of it is really investigating uh, our practices and our expectations in not just in academia, but in professionalism, in success, in capitalism, in production, all of these things. We have to investigate what are the expectations, both conscious and, and subconscious that we're projecting onto these spaces. And then when those expectations are confronted, what do we do? Is it forced assimilation or is it us recognizing that the system isn't truly accommodating? All, all of the things that everyone can contribute to our society. So I think a lot of our framings for validity are inherently exclusionary, just by just by default, just by practice. American professionalism, American scholarship, uh, all of the rules and frameworks around those things are fairly new and were created with without the majority of people at the table. So we have selective historical acknowledgment combined with rampant historical ignorance and revisionism. (laughs) And that's what we're operating through, that's our lens. So if we truly want historical education to be accessible and empowering, uh, we need to make sure that we're not regulating and policing the individuals who don't have, who don't have conventional access, right? And even conventional, I'm saying in quotes, conventional access to their own history and rulemaking, let alone others. So they're coming into systems they they can't even educate themselves on until they are at the chopping block, until they're they've already run through the gauntlet and wind up at the end and learn that they've lost. This is this is uh, not sustainable and it's obviously not inclusionary. So that's that's sort of the framings I'll just offer on that. But I think what you've named is so critical and it just is gonna require a lot of a lot of commitment and dedication from us as a society to recognize that it's that it is as pivotal and integral as you've just named.
2: I totally agree with you, Madeline, on that one, especially when you talk about a paradigm shift. It's hmm, you know, with my years of teaching, and, and it's it's not been a, a lot of years, <laughs> I've come to realize how in how can I say it? What's the word that I'm looking for? I would say embedded, it's not quite what I mean, but in, embedded racism is into all of our systems, into everything that we do, from, from housing to to having access, just having access to technology, to education, uh, careers and jobs. And I don't think people, most people do not know that. My thing is that what I want to say is that we cannot move forward. We cannot change this until we have a real wake-up call. And that means not just that racism exists. Everybody has some kind of general idea of what racism is. They usually think it's you know, someone shouting at someone else some uh, racial epithets because they don't like the color of their skin kind of thing. <laughs> but it's it's more to it to that. and It's very intricate. And you really have to know the history. One of the things I've uh, been teaching in my Lives of Struggle class is talking about, if you've ever read uh, The Condemnation of Blackness, it's a really mm-hmm. opening book. It's by um, Khalil Gibran Muhammad. And in my class, we looked at, he talks about the social scientists that came out of the, uh, after the Civil War, this is post-Civil War. During this time, you had 4 million people who were suddenly no longer slaves. And now the the white men in power were thinking, okay, so are we going to say that these people are going to be citizens? Does that mean that they will have the same opportunities that we will, which means that they could be in a position of power to affect our lives? That was one of the core thoughts that they had. And then you see all of this, not that this wasn't there prior to this, but then you see all of this science, you know, so-called science around African-Americans being inferior, not capable of taking care of themselves, having all these problems, which is so funny because it's like, well, all of the problems that many of them had were due to the fact that you enslaved them. (laughs) That's had nothing to do with them, you know? (laughs) So until you really understand that history and to see how it has affects every area of our lives you can't really change this. I I think I think it's going to just keep transforming in one ear. I think there's some some progress we can make a little bit here and there. But until we really as a society recognize how racism has infected every area that we, you know, of of life. I don't think we're going to. I think we're going to still be struggling with the the same issues. And people do not know. They don't know the history. They like like Natlin said. It's revisionist history. Everything was great. You know, the white people came and you know they uh, civilized all the savages and you know built all these things. I mean, that's what. But that's what people know because that's what's it's it's a, a, a accepted as as history. Um, but until you really go through and see how these things how the history connects to you know what's happening now and and how it's transformed you really don't have an idea like i didn't know until i started looking at this how even just having access to the internet is part of you know mm-hmm. the system that we live in racism and but i mean i, I just you know Being in a metropolitan area, everybody has the internet here, but there are many communities that don't have, especially uh, reservations that don't have it, you know, for various reasons. And when you rely on the part, again, this is relying on, um, in in my mind, you're relying on on society to really teach you and educate you. That's one thing I have to say about my parents that was really wonderful about them is that they they always taught me about uh, Black history and African-American history and culture because I I would have never gotten that from public school at all. The only thing I got from elementary school about Black people were that first there were slaves and then there was Martin Luther King. (laughs) (laughs) Ditto,
1: ditto, yeah oh boy oh there was there was Harriet Tubman in the in the middle uh but that's about it
2: yeah yeah right right yeah Harriet Tubman was there I don't even know if you recognize Harriet Tubman and when I was that was not taught whatsoever I mean but it was my parents that taught me about that about literature black literature and you know Frederick Douglass and and Langston Hughes and musicians like Scott Joplin that's how I found out about it not because it was taught in schools and now you have this whole movement about not teaching anything related to ethnic studies critical race theory any of that which is you know again that's revisionist history you're saying that now you're what you know and what you experienced is not important it's not even real you know um, we came and we you know took savages from Africa and and p- ones who are already here and we Civilize them. And that's all you need to know. So that's, that's until we really know that history. And I mean, all of us, that really has to be taught. And I think the reason why it's, there's such a pushback against it. I don't think it's necessarily just the fact that it's coming from people of color, which it often is, but it's about changing the power structure. So that means that you know, if we if we really enlighten people about this, most people are going to say, "Hey, we got to stop this. We got to do something." You know, this is just a repetition of what we've done in history, and here are some new ways to construct whatever it is. You know, uh, you know, construct our lives and things of that nature. That takes away a power structure. That means that as a, I would say, white maybe heterosexual man, I can't just get by off of you know, my looks and, and maybe a little bit off of my education. I don't have that step up from other people. I have to now compete with everybody else. And that's a big, that that's something that you see throughout history, even at the, you know, labor, the, uh, what do you call it? Physical labor type of jobs where um, whenever it looked like they were going to have to compete against any, you know, immigrants, uh, people of color, there was a big thing. Oh, no, 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 we can't have this. We we, uh-uh, no, no. We somehow have to restrict immigration. We have to keep these people oppressed in a way. We don't want to have to be in a position to compete with them. And so it's really a power structure thing. And that's part of the reason what we're hitting up against when you want to educate people with critical race theory. It, this whole idea of, you know, making white people feel bad, that's... <laughs> That's just, you know, st- no, no, it's it's changing the power structure. To me, that is what we're running up against is a real, I think, a power shift. And that's what we keep hitting. This is the, it, it's about, and I hate to use this in general terms, but in a sense, those at the top who want to remain at the top.
1: <laughs> well, now I'm going to have to go rage, uh, do something.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, to, I, to- <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Any last messages for our listeners? Just in terms of last last sentiments out to folks, I think these conversations on, and I know today we we almost exclusively talked about just just like s- surface level racial identities, right? It's like this right. is like there's so much more to this conversation that needs to be had. And I I don't think that it's so much about about us all needing to get like on an education train as much as it is like a a commitment train It's like do we are we committed to seeing these changes because it could take us forever to educate ourselves on all the things we've missed and we should be putting resources into doing that and also how do we how do we attempt or allocate our energy and time towards manifesting change in real time right now, while we all try to get caught up on our own histories, because there's so much I learn about my own identities all the time that's been withheld from me or, or that the powers that be attempted to destroy so that I would never have access to that, you know, so this is a lifelong journey for me that, you know, yeah. maybe, mm-hmm. maybe 200 years later from now, I could say someone could have a true comprehensive history of something, but, but it's not going to happen in my lifetime. So what, what does it mean to, to move forward in ignorance, which we all have ignorance. So like, how do we actually take those steps? And that's hard. It's really, really difficult. That's the conversation that I think is often either missed or overlooked, uh, in the sense that if we can just do enough, enough diversity trainings, enough ENI trainings, <laughs> like, we're all going to get there together, you know, and it's, it's, it will never happen with with trainings that revolve somewhat around like vocabulary lessons, right? Where it's like, just know what these uh-huh. words are, that that doesn't achieve what we need. Um, that's not real time to change. And so that's, that's the only thing I'd, I'd like to leave off on is that we should, we should embrace our ignorance as, as motivation, something for us to say this, this needs to change. So like step one, yes. how, how do I get past this? How do I, how do I say I'm less ignorant today than I was yesterday? And um, really leverage that towards improving conditions for everyone. Because um, I definitely think if folks are waiting to be educated or to have access to that education, especially for marginalized communities, that may never come.
2: Right. You know, I may
3: true. never actually get a hold of my history. And that, you know, so those are just some of the framings I, that kind of sit in my head that I'd love to just share out at the end of this. Oh, I love
2: that. One of the things that I would say, and thank you, Natlin, for your words, because I um, I just resonate with them. Uh, deeply. One of the things that I think that it, this is not always easy work. Um, it is not about, you know, there are a lot of feelings that come up. There's a lot of um, trauma sometimes that will come up. I remember when, uh, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this, but when I was <laughs> learning about the history of the Mississippi Delta, writing my dissertation, there were times where I had to stop and just sit, get a drink, and like, wow, you know, <laughs> just. You know, because there's so much to it. I, I think um, one of the beautiful things I think about uh, you, Natlun, is talking talking about learning your own history, and it's 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 complex. It's not easy. Sometimes there are painful realizations, painful um, uh, situations, or just complex situations in terms of identity. You know, a lot of what you're doing. things are not as clear cut as as we would like to think that they are, you know, in terms of culture and race. All of those are social constructs. But I think one way to start is to really know about your own history and and be inquisitive about, you know, your family and where did they come from and what did they do when they get here. And not necessarily, it's not always about judgment, but just to recognize who we are because our families and our histories are what kind of shape us into who we are today in whatever way that that looks like. Um, I think that's a wonderful place to get started. And it's right. Not everybody has access to, you know, academic education about race and critical theory, critical race theory. I just think about learning more about who you are and, and, and be open to history. It can be painful sometimes. And I think that's just a part of. I look. Sometimes I look at things at a broader perspective. Sometimes that's just the human condition. If you look at cultures uh, historically, many cultural groups have gone through traumatizing things prior. You know, a lot of times we talk a lot about colonialization period because that was you know very defining moment even to now. But but before that, you know, there were wars, there were fighting, there were you know. All kinds of things, and I I think that's a part of the human condition. Unfortunately, that a lot of our past does have some pain, but to be open to that and to just be inquisitive. If you don't, if you're not in school, if they're not teaching critical race theory, that's okay. But look into your own history, Uh, and even sometimes there's problems with that because you know we're as scholars, we're always learning and redefining and (laughs) trying to you know are we are we just repeating what we've been told or you Know there there are issues like Madeline has brought up many times in terms of academia and how we do our research and how we, you know, talk about people. There's always those issues as well. But I think a great place to start is with your own family, uh, your own cultural groups and finding out more about that. What what did they do when they when they came here, if they came here from someplace or or what did they do prior to you know, whatever period of history and 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 be inquisitive about that. A lot of our identities are, especially from our families, are a lot more complex than just black and white. Um, I think that's the you know the general idea is that there's maybe two, maybe three racial groups, you know, in this. But the, but things are a lot more complicated than that. And just being inquisitive, you know, if you don't, like I said, if you don't go to a university, college, or whatever, that's fine. Uh, but there are libraries you got public libraries there's a lot that you can learn there are people that you can talk to who-
1: yes shout out to public libraries yeah <laughs> <laughs> <They can't>, libraries. <laughs>
3: yeah,
2: me too.
0: yeah well thank you so much both of you for coming on
2: thank you guys for inviting yeah. me and you know oh, yeah want to talk oh. again let me know yeah, yeah thank you all for, Please.
3: for creating the space and and for sharing this
2: yes. yeah absolutely yeah.
0: we always leave our listeners with one final message don't be an Don't asshole. Don't be an
2: asshole. <laughs> I love
3: it.
0: Okay, so this month we would like to thank Paris, Yay. Kristen Denham. Yay. Oh. Yeah. I've
1: never heard the last name Denham. Oh, really? Yeah, never.
0: Oh. She's a famous linguist, so
1: Oh, well thank you.
0: <laughs> Samuel Vincent. Thank you. And Freya Scott.
1: Thank you as well. I think I've seen all those names except Denim on Twitter. All those last two names. So do I thank you. <laughs>
0: yes, thank you. And anyone who wants to join, once again, patreon.com slash vocal pod. And we have bonus episodes and stickers and oh and our newest thing is a
1: mug yes a very cute cool mug <laughs> so join us there
0: the vocal fries podcast is produced by me carrie gillen for halftone audio theme music by nick granum you can find us on tumblr twitter facebook and instagram at vocal fries pod You can email us at vocalfriespod at gmail.com, and our website is vocalfriespod.com.